Welcome to the Beyond the Bubble podcast, where every week we take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms across the country can. I'm McClatchy DC politics editor Adam Wallner, filling in for Alex Rorty, who thought he was smart to take off the week Joe Biden was supposed to decide his VP pick, only to see that announcement get pushed into next week. So he might be in for a rude awakening next Monday. But thankfully, I don't have to fill Alex's shoes all by myself. Today, I am joined by one of our White House correspondents, Francesca Chambers, who I believe is still trying to get Kellyanne Conway to appear on the show one of these weeks. Francesca, thanks for coming back. Well, I'm at my house right now, so if Kellyanne Conway walked by, that would be <laughs> incredibly bizarre. So I don't think it's going to happen today. All right. All right. Well, yeah, well, m- maybe next week then. <laughs> We're also joined by national political correspondent David Katniss. He's been busy preparing pre-writes on all of the VP contenders that are on Joe Biden's shortlist. And unfortunately, you know, for all the readers out there, most of them will never see the light of day. Dave, thanks for taking a break to be with us today. Yeah, and it's possible that by next week's podcast, we still may not have a pick, given that this just keeps getting kicked down the road. So I know. I, I thought for sure by, by today we, we'd be talking about who Joe Biden actually picked, but uh, instead we're stuck just sort of continuing to go over kind of where things stand on on his shortlist. And we're definitely going to get to that a little bit later, obviously, a lot of interest in that. Uh, But I want to start off with, you know, what's one of my favorite topics, and that's the electoral map. We're now less than three months away from election day, and that means campaigns need to really start making some strategic and at times difficult decisions about where to invest their limited resources for the final stretch of the race. And with President Donald Trump and Joe Biden still sidelined from the physical campaign trail, they're not even going to be traveling to battleground states at this point to deliver their acceptance speeches later this month. You know, a lot of those resources are going to be directed towards advertising to help get their message out. At this point, you know, the Biden campaign has taken a pretty broad view of the map, certainly a lot broader than I think we had expected at this point. They announced this week that they reserved $280 million dollars in TV and digital ads in 15 states for the fall. So that not, that includes not only those core battlegrounds we've talked about a lot on this podcast, but states both Trump and Clinton won fairly comfortably in 2016. And that's an expansion from where he is now. He, he's currently on the air in seven states. Trump's campaign had previously reserved $145 million in TV ads across 11 states starting after Labor Day. But the campaign has recently downsized its presence on the airwaves. They're only actually running ads in four states and in, in D.C. as well. But they're focusing on, on early voters uh, in some of those swing states who can already start requesting ballots or even uh, voting early in person starting in September. Francesca, what does all of this sort of tell you about the way both campaigns are viewing the map now that we're less than 90 days out here? Well, for President Trump to start with, even as he says that mail-in voting isn't safe, and by the way, he says now that it's safe in Florida because Ron DeSantis, a Republican, is governor, and Rick Scott, a Republican, was governor before that, and didn't really have a clear way to differentiate between Florida and Nevada, say that he said was not safe when he was asked about this at a press conference this week. But even given all of that, the Trump campaign seems to be acknowledging at this point that people are going to vote by mail in those early states and they need to be reaching out to them. You also heard them this week try to make an argument to get the debates moved up. The first one is supposed to be at the end of September. Mm-hmm. They want to see one earlier. They also want to see or or see one added, a fourth one in order to get one earlier. So they're really starting to feel the heat from those voters who either vote absentee or through mail-in ballots at the at the beginning of the month. And Dave, you know, this is something that you've been reporting on over the past few weeks, both where Trump has sort of been redirecting some of his ad buys recently, but also the fact that 
yeah, you know, the November 3rd uh, election is technically, you know, only a little less than 90 days away, but it we're really not that far away from voters being able to, to already start casting their ballots in a lot of key battleground states. What do you make of, of the Trump campaign's ad strategy, at, at least at this point in time? So I think the biggest difference that has changed since a month ago is that Michigan appears to be off the map. The core sort of three battleground states that we talk about ad nauseum over and over, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, Republicans have scaled back spending in Michigan. Not only the Trump campaign is completely off the air there, but the super PAC is off the air there. I also think that Mm -hmm. other Republican outside groups are not playing there. The Club for Growth just went on the air with a anti-Biden blitz, a bunch of spots hitting him on taxes, his economic record. They chose to go in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona. And if you look at the polling averages, Michigan is the worst position state for Trump. He's about down eight points there to Biden whereas Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are closer. So I think that is the piece of the electoral puzzle that has changed. Everything else is pretty much the same. You still have those other five battlegrounds, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, that are still in play, the campaign's dumping money in. But as you said, the Biden campaign, because their fundraising has picked up so significantly, is now trying Mm -hmm. to expand the map even further, putting some money into Texas, Georgia. I would pause because when the Biden campaign first announced they were playing in Texas, you know, they got got a lot of media coverage about it, but that's all it was. It was only about $65,000 they spent, which is not even a drop in the bucket in a state like Texas. So it's important to look at how much these campaigns are spending in these states rather than just looking at that they are spending. Mm -hmm. And we won't know that those details uh, for a while. Right. Well, and another thing I want to, to note, Dave, because, you know, you know, we have been talking a lot over the course of this campaign, you know, obviously about those those core battleground states and then about some some areas where the Biden campaign thinks they could maybe reach into. And you mentioned some of those Texas, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio. But I, I was a little surprised to see that they are planning to spend in some states that Hillary Clinton won pretty, pretty handedly in, in 2016. Is that them? You know, like you said, they, they have really picked up their fundraising and they're, they're almost at parity now in terms of cash on hand with the Trump operation at this point. Is that them just, just being extremely safe here and not taking anything for granted? Yeah. Imagine if they were to win Wisconsin, but then somehow drop Nevada, right? Like mm-hmm. the PTSD from 2016, <laughs> I think is, is still infused in the Biden campaign. And look, if you talk to them back in April, they weren't sure about their fundraising. Like there are a lot of questions about Biden as a fundraiser. He didn't raise a lot of money during the primary, was outraised by most of his opponents in the primary. So there was a question. So they weren't going to show their hand then. But in the last two months, fundraising has come in as the party's unified around Biden. They're now almost at parity with Trump. So they're saying, okay, we're going to expand the map and we're going to protect places that look, Hillary won, but only won by a couple points. Minnesota, Nevada, mm-hmm. you hear New Hampshire uh, mm-hmm. brought up a lot. I hear that in conversations with the Trump campaign, that that could be their new path, you know, sort of piecing together other parts of the electoral map. So the Biden campaign wants to have a presence there and wants to wants to play defense as well, now that they have the resources to do so. And Francesca, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the Trump campaign was talking a big game about potentially expanding the map and going into states that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. And again, you know, as I'd mentioned, 
post Labor Day, they still do have ad reservations in mm-hmm. a lot of other states. Of course, those could change. You know, there are only reservations that money hasn't been spent yet. But at least right now, it seems like they are taking a much narrower view of the map. Do you expect that to continue? That they really are, are going to only hone in on on kind of a handful of states here to try and you know get as close to kind of recreating that that path to victory that they took in in 2016? So they're also just taking a beat is sort of the way that they're putting it, right? They had one Mm -hmm. campaign manager and he had one strategy and now Bill Stepien has taken over and you've seen the president even start to use different language to address certain things since Bill Stepien has taken over. I was struck how the president in a call with Georgia voters was talking about public safety Now, his message was that you will not be safe if Joe Biden is president, but that is different than law and order, which is the way that he had been describing it. Frank Luntz, the pollster, had really cautioned the campaign against doing that. He said it wasn't working with voters. Now you hear Donald Trump switching and pushing it as a safety message against Joe Biden. So they're clearly listening to some of the criticism that they had received even from their allies and applying that to the campaign. So you could see them go back up potentially in some of these states with with different messages, but they're clearly, the shakeup doesn't just extend to the campaign manager, it extends all across the board. As far as the map is concerned, they're still saying that they could win in New Hampshire. They're still pushing Minnesota. They've added resources in the state of Minnesota from where they were in 2016. New Hampshire still seems a potential believable uh, pickup opportunity. And while it does not have as many uh, electoral votes as a Pennsylvania, certainly in a tight situation, it could tip the balance. I wrote about that earlier in the year. I still think that's true. Minnesota, to me, after the death of George Floyd, is not the same Minnesota as 2016 when you're Mm -hmm. looking at that, that map. And they have not acknowledged that to this point. I was thinking recently, Francesca, about that story you had written earlier this year about how, you know, that's always been, you know, kind of a, a, a traditional battleground state. And like you said, certainly not that many electoral votes, but it seems like, it, you know, that you would expect to see a little more spending there from, from the Biden campaign or, or, for, or from the Trump campaign to this point. Dave, any other, you know, states that you think that we should be kind of keeping an eye out for that might, you know, come a little more into the mix as, as being at the center of the map between now and, and, the, and the election? Or do you think that we're, even with, you know, all of these sort of expansions in, in spending, that it's still more or less going to be decided in, in the states that we always thought that it would be? Yeah, I think the core five to six sliding Michigan off now, at least for mm-hmm. the time being, since the Trump campaign is not engaged there. If I had to add a, the next state, I would sort of put Ohio and Georgia Two very different states demographically, sort of the opposite ends of the coalition that Biden would have to put together. But the polling there has been been pretty good. The difference is Georgia obviously has two Senate races going on. So a highly engaged electorate sort of down the ballot. Ohio, Ohio Democratic Party's complaining, like, you got to pay attention to us. Like, Biden mm-hmm. can win here. They just don't have other big races. So right. I'm watching those states to see, like, will other groups really start to pour in? We've seen priorities hold off. Other Democratic groups hold off saying, whoa, 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 we got to take care of business first. But I'm keeping my eye on Ohio and Georgia. Yeah, that that was kind of the final point I wanted to bring up on this. You know, how much do you think, you know, I'll I'll kind of pose this to both of you for for both the the Trump and Biden campaign's perspective. How much do down ballot races have an impact on what the presidential campaigns are spending? And you kind of mentioned it there, Dave. Ohio, you know, maybe it is winnable, for, for Democrats in 2020. But if they're trying to allocate their resources here, you know, they may want to go into states where there are competitive Senate races, competitive governor's races or house races. They could lift 
their candidates. I'm, you know, I'll start with you, Francesca. Do you think that the Trump campaign is sort of taking that into account when they're making these these decisions? Well, you certainly see it playing out in North Carolina, a state that the president mm-hmm. and the vice president have uh, repeatedly visited. And it's a state that the Trump campaign is advertising in right now. And Tom Tillis is on the ballot there and he faces a very tough race. At the same time, there are there are other states like Maine, the, the the campaign has mentioned Maine, where Susan Collins is on the ballot. So that's somewhere they, they've they've zeroed in on as well. But there are other, you know, there are other states like Georgia. So in the call with Georgia voters that he did, it was like one of his teletown halls. He explicitly mentioned David Perdue and some other politicians in the state, which is the first time during the teletown halls I've heard him do that. So that just, again, shows that there's at least some sort of acknowledgement or strategy that they need to start figuring out how to use these opportunities with the president to lift up candidates who are in competitive races in those states. How is that weighing on on the Biden campaign in, in your sense, Dave, you know, considering that Democrats are hoping that they could take back the Senate as well this fall? Yeah, I think it's very important to the Biden campaign. I think, look, when you make a call and you have a Senate race, you can get it sort of two bangs for your buck. I mean, you can say, look, vote for Mark Kelly and Joe Biden. They're both aligned on these three issues when you're doing mm-hmm. these these sort of calls to voters or even mail pieces. So it helps. And I would say even further down the ballot, I mean, this was flagged to me in Arizona. Democrats are only a couple seats away in each chamber from flipping the state legislature. Mm-hmm. So the state party chair there told me that they're constantly talking to the Biden campaign. Where can we bring in one of our candidates that's running for state Senate to be on a, a call, one of your Zooms, to talk about education or whatever that issue is? And Biden is more of a party builder guy than the previous two, Obama and, frankly, Hillary Clinton. So he cares about these things. He cares about nurturing those relationships. So I do think it matters if there are competitive races, which, frankly, there are competitive races everywhere if you go all the way down the ballot, you know, beyond center races. And Biden constantly talks. He was in a virtual fundraiser last night. The most important thing is we win back the Senate. That's the only way I'm going to get my agenda through. So I think you're going to consistently hear that message through the fall. And one other thing, if I could just add to Dave, to counter that, you're not hearing that message in that same way from President Donald Trump, when he's had these tele-rallies, right, he's not talking about the Senate and how if we just got a couple more votes, then we would be able to do all these things. And I think part of the reason for that right now, too, is because you have this gridlock in the United States Senate to, to try and get a stimulus bill passed. The gridlock is in the Republican Party, partially, with conservatives and Republicans not able to agree on things. And so it's, it's kind of a, an ironic and tough argument to make right now for Republicans that if we only just had a couple more votes, we'd be able to get our agenda done because they can't get it done right now and they already have the majority. And that may be a factor into why he's not making that argument as aggressively right now. Well, let's move now to what is likely to be the next big event in the 2020 presidential race, and that would be Joe Biden's VP pick. The former vice president himself is wrapping up the process this week by interviewing finalists one-on-one in anticipation of a public announcement next week. Many names have come and gone from Biden's shortlist over the past few months. Dave, what's your sense of where things stand here in the final stretch of the deep stakes? Well, you know, it's funny how a week can change a lot. At this point last week, Karen Bass was on the ascent in Biden world through Democratic observers. She was seen as sort of a unifying figure that could bring the center and the left together. And and then all this opposition just started dropping on her head, just, you know, her comments at a Scientology church, her, you know, praise of Fidel Castro and that getting more scrutiny and on and on it went throughout the week. And a lot of this dropping on conservative websites. So that sort of programmed some people to think, whoa, do Republicans really don't want to run 
against Karen Bass. I think that has hurt her in the finals here going into this these final couple days. And obviously you have Kamala Harris, who I think from the beginning has been the front runner, who remains there, vulnerabilities and all, questions and all about, you know, potential loyalty to Biden, about about running for president herself, putting her own political prospects potentially ahead of ahead of his. Those come from Biden world. Then you have Susan Rice, who wasn't at the start of this process, another sort of figure who gained momentum over the summer because the Biden world was looking for other options. They were constantly asking people. Lawmakers I talked to this week said, even as late as July, the first question they'd ask is, is there anyone else we should be looking at? Is there anyone else we should be considering? Susan Rice had a relationship with Biden through the Obama administration as national security advisor, as UN ambassador. And Biden trusts her. She's obviously very smart, obviously very capable. And so that relationship is is weighing heavy. Now, on mm-hmm. domestic politics, we don't know we don't know much about Susan Rice, right? She has not weighed into a lot of the domestic affairs. So that's a question mark. She's also never run for office. So she's never been through the heat of a campaign. Probably another potential negative against her. But right now it seems like it's those three. In, in the finals with with Bass probably dropping off a bit given what she has gone through. Kamala Harris or Susan Rice, Karen Bass. If it's not one of those names, man, have we been fooled <laughs> by everything, by the, by, right. you know, by people in Biden's well, well, Yeah, that, that, would, that would be a, quite the impressive smokescreen. It, it, it would be. <laughs> it would be the head fake of the year. Yeah. Well, you know, Francesca, we were talking a little bit about this the other day that you know, I, I've been a little struck by how much Republicans have been sort of wading in to, to the Biden deep stakes and, and kind of launching attacks on, on some of the contenders. Uh, you know, Karen Bass, you know, they, they mm-hmm. went at her kind of end of last week. And I don't even, and, and not to suggest that some of the reporting that's been done on her is all necessarily, you know, opposition research drops. You know, I think there's also, look, Karen Bass is someone who just hasn't been in the national spotlight before, hasn't really been vetted. Right. All it takes is just maybe, uh, you know, some, some Googling and you'll find some of these things. But last weekend in Florida, some Republicans took the time to, you know, set up this call organized by the Trump campaign to go after Karen Bass. There's been reporting this week suggesting that they, you know, they would love to see Susan Rice on the ticket because they think they could really hammer her on her foreign policy background. You know, what, what do you make of this strategy from Republicans? Or is, is it them tipping their hand or are they trying to play chess here and trying to fool us into who they actually want, want on, on the ticket? I'm so glad we had this conversation before because I have actually been able to go back now and get a better sense of clarity on this. So I was talking to a Trump campaign aide and this is how they described it to me. They said that it doesn't really matter to them whether Karen Bass is or isn't picked to be Joe Biden's VP. The damage that they were seeking to do has already been done. They were trying to make it sound like, look, she was even considered when the Biden campaign knew these things about her and knew this about her relationship with Cuba and Cuban Americans. So this is the kind of person that Joe Biden is. It's it's more meant to further their message that he's a quote unquote radical leftist and sides with radical leftists. So I don't get the sense that they ever necessarily thought that she was going to be picked, which is why they felt comfortable hitting her so hard. Because once, once she wasn't picked, right, you can't make that argument argument anymore. So it does seem like they had a strategy and they're playing chess a little bit. Naturally, they did not want to get into conversations about Kamala Harris and some of the other folks who it does seem like could be more likely to be the pick. They don't want to reveal the strategy. But one thing I did hear was that it sounds like they're going to try to paint her as someone who was so unexciting and was such a bad candidate that she couldn't even make it to Iowa in the first place and really start to lean in on that message. 
Well, yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk to, about Kamala Harris a little bit, Dave. As you mentioned, I, you know, she's been pretty much considered the the front runner in this process from the beginning, and and you know, a lot of names have come and gone from from this list over the past few months. I mean, we're not even talking about someone like Gretchen Whitmer, for instance. You know, who's somebody kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, her response earned a lot of accolades from Democrats. People were pointing to her as a vice presidential pick. Not hearing as much even about Elizabeth Warren at at this point, you know, who a lot of progressive light, as there is more pressure now on Biden to pick a black woman for his his running mate. Now that all these people have sort of come and gone, is Kamala Harris still more or less in the same place that, that she was when this process began? I think so. I think she wasn't as strong a front runner as we all perceived her to be given they were looking for other options. I mean, if she was going to be the one, Karen Bass would have never gotten this far, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted other options and and they wanted to kick the tires. Look, Kamala Harris does have a lot to offer. Senator from the largest state, former attorney general. So she's been elected. She's been through the process. She's also just been through a grueling national campaign. As Francesca said, it did not go well, but she's still been through it. So she knows how to go through a cable TV interview. She knows how to go through a debate. All those things that the vice presidential pick is going to have to do. She knows how to throw a a bomb at Donald Trump and and know how to make it land. I would say the Republicans I'm talking to, and they're not all affiliated with the Trump campaign, but they say the oppo on Kamala is just much, much larger. All these Republicans are starting to produce big documents on all these candidates. And there's just much more out there about Kamala because they've had much more time. They've had over a year to go through it, uh, given her own campaign. So they're trying to catch up if it's going to be Susan Rice, trying to catch up if it's going to be Karen Bass. And I, I think that's part of why you saw this this barrage of things dropped. Some of them, I think, were dug up by reporters. Others, I think, were being circulated. I think it depends on on the story on that regarding Karen Bass. So you've taken that all into consideration, and Kamala still looks pretty good. She's not perfect, but she's pretty good. The thing I would also say about Kamala is that the left is going to have a problem with her. They're going to have a problem with her criminal justice record and some of her decisions as a prosecutor. I think you'll hear that she didn't prosecute Steve Mnuchin far enough in banking fraud in California come up. You'll, you'll hear the truancy that she pursued and, and put black parents in jail for their children not going to school. Now that looks just part of the problem given the current context of, of criminal justice. So a lot of Republicans I talk to just believe for investigative reporters out there, there's going to be a lot more to go through on certain cases and decisions that she made as a district attorney in San Francisco and an attorney general in the state of California. But, you know, will it matter? Again, VPs usually don't matter, right? This one may matter more given Biden's age and given the fact that he could be a one-term president and this could be the, the next standard bearer for the Democratic Party very quickly in in four years. So right. that's the only caveat sure. to why this pick may matter more than usual. And of course, you know, VP picks matter in terms of, you know, if this person ends up being elected, they're the vice president. You know, they're a heartbeat away right. from the presidency. They're going to mm-hmm. hold a lot of sway in the next administration if they win. But from an electoral standpoint, I think, you know, what you're getting at there, Dave, you know, there isn't a whole lot of evidence that these picks really do all that much to swing things. What's your view on that, Francesca? Does it really matter all that much just from a pure electoral standpoint who Biden ultimately picks, you know, in terms of his chances against Trump? Maybe this year less in the sense that it's not as if like Biden or Trump is is 
campaigning aggressively, right? Or, or in any of those states. So that's how it typically has been used is like, yeah, we're really going to punch up the voters in this person's state. But if they're not going anywhere, right? And they're doing everything virtually, how much does that really matter at this point? But as far as I will say one other thing about the, the Karen Bass situation, if I may, the Trump mm-hmm. campaign also believes that, or at least said that, the stuff was coming out before they started picking up on it, right? They didn't start that messaging. They didn't release their first hit on her until after an Atlantic piece came out that talked about her background and having gone to Cuba and all of that stuff. So they perceived it as the Biden campaign trying a trial balloon, knowing that these things were in her background, trying to figure out how big of a problem they would be if she was seriously picked, particularly with Cuban Americans in the state of Florida. And then they just picked up on what, what was already out there. And that does sort of track. The Atlantic article came out the 31st. The Trump campaign started sending out emails hitting her on August 1st. So Dave, final point on this. Any chance that you see for, for a late wild card here or you know, just a surprise pick that, that we, we didn't see coming? Or, or do you think it's ultimately going to be one of these these people that, that that we've been talking about? I mean, very low percent chance that it's not one of these three, given the 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 amount of sheer reporting that beyond just what we're doing, but in, in the entire political reporting universe. That being said, you know, Timmy Duckworth and Elizabeth Warren do still get mentioned as long shots. You know, one Democrat put it to me this way this week, June and George Floyd changed everything. And there was pressure on Joe Biden to pick a black woman before that. And then the nation sort of changed dramatically after that. And that, it's almost an imperative now for him to do so. And I think that's why you see the three true finalists hmm. as all being black women. I guess one other person that, that we should mention, who I know we've talked about in the past, has been Val Demings, you know, mm-hmm. the Florida congresswoman. She seems like she's yeah. fallen off a, a little bit f- from the radar. Is that, that your, your read of things, Dave? Yeah, I think the problem is she was a former police chief in a year yeah. that it's probably not good to be a cop in the Democratic Party. I think she was considered for a while. I think the Biden campaign did a really good job of sort of giving every woman their week. I mean, Tammy Duckworth had, had a week where she was in the spotlight. And it was sort of, it wasn't, it was suggested to me that they did that intentionally to sort of lift them up, you know, make them available for interviews, put them on television and see how they did. I mean, we saw that with Whitmer. We saw that with Amy Klobuchar way back months more before she took herself out of the process. So they, they sort of, gave every woman a platform, gave them their trial, and now we're here to the, to the finals. And hopefully next week we have a decision and we're not still yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. thumb-sucking over this a week yeah, from now. I, yeah, I think that, yeah. I, it's I, time. I, yeah, we should commit to the next VP discussion on, on this podcast will occur when there's actually a pick, you know, whether, yeah. whether that, that's next week or not. I don't know if we, there's anything more right. we can, can possibly say about this. Well, I think now it's time to move to our favorite part of the show, uh, where we pull out our reporters' notebooks and tell our listeners something they don't know, or at least hopefully they don't know, about the political landscape. Francesca, do you want to kick us off here? Yeah, so I, I'm going to go with the debates this week because this has been a really hot topic. So I was talking to a, a Biden campaign aide right before we did this podcast today, and they really feel like that the debate issue about whether to move up a debate or whether there should be four is just the Trump campaign trying to gaslight people because they have not even accepted the three debates yet, trying to make it about mail-in voting when Donald Trump himself has has been pushing his own voters not to do mail-in voting, to show up on election day, which would be after the three debates have taken place. 
they really don't want to engage on the idea that there are people who will be voting before that first debate. And a lot of people, given that there's a pandemic, they just really feel like, right, like that, that this framing is all wrong. They said that they will be at the debates, however, that anything that's being talked about, about digital, how, how Biden allegedly wants to, you know, not be there in person, that's not their plan. They said that Wherever the Commission on Presidential Debates says that the debates will be, however many they say that there are, that they will be there. So given that former Vice President Joe Biden will now not be speaking in Milwaukee at the Democratic National Convention, he's mostly doing campaigning remotely. If they mm -hmm. are planning to go to the debates, that could be the first time that we actually see him out there in person. Yeah, those those debates will, will be here before we know it, whether or not they, they, they do end up adding another one in early September or not. Dave, what do you have for us? A little more of a Veep Stakes snippet. Susan Rice, obviously we know her as the former national security advisor to Barack Obama. She's known as a diplomat. She served in the National Security Council of the Clinton administration. But there's one piece of her resume that hasn't really been explored that Republicans are now in high gear uh, to find out the most about. And that was her stint at McKinsey, the global mm. consulting firm that, that caused Pete Buttigieg a little trouble. Obviously, a lot of clients there from all over the world with different interests. Republicans think that her tenure there, she was only there for two years, but nobody knows much about it. McKinsey's not talking about it. So there is sort of a document hunt going on, and they will try to bring that up and try to create some friction with progressives, depending on which clients she was representing in the early 90s at that consulting firm, if she's the pick. If she's not, nobody will ever ever care about it. <laughs> well, yeah, unless she wants to you know, run for president herself. At, you know, That's true. Someday, which, you know, That's now, true. Now, now that we know she has these political ambitions, maybe we can't rule that out. Well, I just wanted to close by uh, giving a shout out to our colleagues at the Kansas City Star and the Wichita Eagle, who did really great coverage leading up to and including Tuesday night's primaries there. A lot of, a lot of big down ballot races there for the Senate and the House and all of that. But I did want to flag one other election result there that maybe went a little less noticed, and that was a constitutional amendment in Missouri to expand Medicaid. That was approved narrowly by voters there. So Missouri is now the 38th state to have expanded Medicaid eligibility under Obamacare. And, you know, Missouri, a fairly red state. And as um, our colleagues there noted in their reporting on this, you know, it was this was really one in the suburbs. So, you know, kind of another example of how, you know, these suburban areas are starting to shift more in the Democrats' favor and how, you know, the, the just the politics around healthcare have really changed so much just in the past few election cycles where now you have this, this pretty red, you know, Republican state now expanding Medicaid here. And, uh, and there will be more states where, where that is going to be on the ballot here um, in, in the coming months and coming years, I'm sure. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Uh, thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And of course, a big thank you to the listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Dave Francesca, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. And we'll talk to you all next week.